you for joining the online worship service of Waynesboro Grace. Our mission is to glorify God by making disciples making disciples. For more information about our church, you can find us online at waynesborograce.org or on Facebook at Waynesboro Grace. Well, hey Grace, it is, it's almost officially summer, but school is officially done, and here we are thinking and talking about the summer, and we're going to spend our summer this summer in the Psalms. And we did this a couple years ago, and it was really good, or at least I thought it was really good. You might not have thought it was really good, but it was really good to just take a, a, a series of weeks and look at the different Psalms in Book 1. Whether you realize it or not, the Psalter, 150 Psalms, is comprised of five different books. And I don't have all the details to tell you of how all of that got broken down here for us this morning. Um, but I do know that our first time through, we spent time looking at selected psalms from the first book of psalms. Psalm 1, Psalm 8, Psalm 23, some of those beloved psalms that you probably are able to recall verses from. This summer, we're going to be taking a look through book 2, and that's Psalms 42 to 72. We're not going to hit them all because we don't have 30 weeks in our summer, or 31. Uh, but we're going to hit selected psalms from book two. And as I hinted at last week or perhaps the week before, um, we're going to probably do this again at some point in a couple years and go through book three and book four and book five. And it's just it's it's a way that I think is just really helpful for us to take a break from walking through books of the Bible but also having a very structured way of approaching our time in God's Word together. And so we're doing a little things a little different here as well. Josh and I are in my office, and uh, we're going to try to just have this feel more like a conversation over coffee together as we look at these psalms. And Lord willing, eventually... Uh, we're going to be back in the sanctuary with one another before this series is over. That's at least how things look right now. And we're going to have the opportunity to continue this conversation together about these psalms in the sanctuary when we're gathered again. And so I'm really excited about the opportunity to teach through these psalms, to look at them with you. I just I think there's some tremendous, tremendous honesty in the Psalms, as well as guidance, as well as wisdom, as well as exhortation, and I think it's going to be good. And I want to pray to that end and would ask for you to join me, and then we'll think about the first two Psalms that we will look at here today. We're going to look at Psalms 42 and 43 together, two parts to a whole, really, and we'll try to make some sense out of them. But would you pray with me before we go any further? And then we'll open up God's Word together. Well, God in heaven, we, we just pause to reflect on your greatness. Psalm 8 says, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God, we want to pause to recognize and acknowledge and give you glory and praise for your majesty. God, Psalm 8 tells us that 
you're also mindful of us. And that's a mind-blowing idea. As we think about the sun and the stars and the universe that you have created by the word of your power, God, your word tells us that you're mindful of us, that you care about what's happening in my house. You care about what's happening in my life. You care about what's happening in my heart. And it's often in the Psalms that we see joy and struggle and trial and triumph. And we see real people experiencing the range of emotions that you have created us to experience. And so God, as we meet with you this summer in the Psalms, would you be gracious to us Would you be gracious to us that we might see what it is that we're to see, that we would hear what it is that you want us to hear, that we would understand your word, that we would delight in it, not because it's a book that gives us warm, fuzzy feelings, but because your word leads us to yourself. So God, ultimately, in thinking about delighting in your word, we want to be people that delight in you. And we ask that you just be gracious to us and help us do that. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at Psalm 42 and 43 together this morning. And one of the things that I did several years ago was I picked up a copy of the Psalms in a single bounded version. And it's the same translation that I normally preach from, that I spend my time reading in. Um, But I actually, just out of curiosity, looked up the date um, just before Josh and I sat down to do this. And um, as of this taping, it would be five years tomorrow that I've had this copy. And I just kind of found that humorous and ironic. Um, But all 150 psalms are in here. And so if you're wondering why I've got two books in front of me, um, one's the entire copy of both the Old and New Testaments, and then one's just the 150 psalms in the Psalter. And uh, I've spent a lot of time just devotionally reading through. And for me, there was just something about having a copy of the psalms in a different way laid out just a little differently, um, that it, it, it just was what I needed at that time. And I'm actually reading through book three of the Psalms right now. And, uh, and so just something to maybe think about to aid your time with the Lord. Um, one of the challenges that I want us to do this coming year, excuse me, summer, is I want us to spend time reading through all of the psalms together. And what we did was created a reading plan for you. And you can get this on um, church email, had it. We'll have some hard copies in the building. If you need one, email it. We'll put it on Facebook, all of those things. But all 150 are laid out. It starts June 1st. And it goes to August 31st. And so it's not quite officially the summer, 
um, but it is the entire month of June, the entire month of July, and the entire month of August. And if you, if you follow that, you'll be able to process through all 150 psalms. But then as a church, I want us to memorize Psalm 67 together. And at some point when we get back together, more than likely towards the end of this series together to just give us some time to indeed memorize, um, we're going to recite this with everyone. Not exactly sure what that's going to look like at this point, but we're going to aim for it and we're going to try to pull it off. And it's only seven verses, so I don't think we're going to go one at a time the way we've done in, in the past when we've done Bible memory. Um, but we're going to give it a good shot. So as you are thinking about Psalms and our summer in the Psalms, I want you to be thinking about memorizing Psalm 67, verses 1 through 7. So if you have your Bibles, grab them and turn to Psalm 42. I just mentioned a moment ago that Psalm 42 and 43 are kind of two parts to a whole and they, they both reflect the same, um, the same moment, it is believed. And if you looked at them, which we will hear today together, you're going to see the same refrain come about. And what's going to happen is that there will be um, the same set of verses that are copied. And it's the writer of this psalm giving a refrain, much like we do when we sing a chorus. And so you can imagine this psalm, or these psalms, having three verses, each ending in a chorus, very similar to what we end up doing with our music when we sing together. And these psalms were written to be sung. Psalm 42, if your Bible carries the heading in it, it's going to say two the choir master. It was written to be sung, as many, if not all, of the psalms were. You could imagine some might be a little easier to sing than others. There's been a lot of music being that has been set to the psalms already. Um, that's even currently happening, not just from several thousands of years ago, but even now in our lifetimes. These psalms were intended to be sung if they were being written for our context, we would address them to Damien. Here they're addressed to the choir master. And they're addressed if and as a mascal of the sons of Korah. Now that's an interesting name and word, and we don't use that, nor will it probably become part of our, our vocabulary after this. But that was a word that referenced a contemplative poem. Or song. And so here the psalmists, who we're also told are the sons of Korah, are telling us that there's some things to think about here. There's a song to be sung and there's things to be thought. And this psalm in particular addresses hope for the hurting. And we're going to see throughout these two psalms how the psalmist is hurting. He's weary. He's spiritually dry. He doesn't have a lot left in the tank. And there's hope. And there's some things that are incredibly important for us. Briefly, to just think about the idea of 
who wrote these psalms. Scriptures record for us it's the sons of Korah. And in 2 Chronicles, they were the ones that stood up in the tabernacle, in the temple, in front of God's people before the Lord to praise the Lord. And we're told in 2 Chronicles 20, verses 18 and 19, and just at the very end of 19, that they stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And so what happened was these singers were also writers. Perhaps they sung what they wrote, but here we have a copy of what they wrote, and there's a lot of honesty in regards to what they wrote, and there's a lot of hurt expressed as we look at what they wrote, but there's absolutely hope expressed as well. There will be several moments throughout these two psalms that we'll look at. The first is in verses 1 and 2. We'll think about the weary cry of the hurting. Verses 3 and 4 of 42 record for us the opposition that the writer is experiencing. Then there's the writer's fight for truth or fight for hope. That's that chorus where after he's expressed what is difficult and what is challenging and those who are opposing him, he, he sings this refrain and he fights for what is true. And then he thinks through how he wants to remember truth. And then there's the longing of this writer who's hurting. There again is another expression of opposition. There again is another refrain or chorus to be sung fighting for truth. And then as we transition into chapter 43, we see the desperate plea of the hurting and then the redemption of the hurting. But that redemption hasn't been fully experienced yet. And 43 ends once more with this chorus, this fight for truth. So it's interesting as we will look at in these Psalms, the, the writer, as a son of Korah, would have had a job in the temple. We don't have a temple system in our day and age, and worship is a little different than it was for the nation of Israel. And so it's in some ways a little bit hard for us to get our hands wrapped around exactly the anguish this individual would have been feeling. Um, quite frankly, I know a lot of pastors, myself included, that feel some of this anguish differently right now than we might have 12 weeks ago. We long to be back in God's house with God's people. And we know that the church in God's house is not a building. I mean, we know all of these things theologically, and yet there's something really special about being together. And it's part of what we've been called to. It's part of what we've been gifted for. It's what we've trained for. And there's, there's an essence in that where it feels like we're just not able to fire on all cylinders. And I think this psalmist expresses some of that, if not even more of that anguish. But you might be thinking to yourself, okay, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a worship leader. I'm not the choir master. I'm not, the, I'm not, I'm not a guy that's going to stand up and even sing in the choir. I'm not the pastor. I'm not you might be looking at all these things just going, well, that's not me. Um, and you might have a fair point. But here's how I think this psalm can connect with where you might be 
what you might have experienced before, what you might be experiencing, and perhaps one day what you might experience. There's four different questions that are expressed in Psalm 42. Three of them get reiterated in Psalm 43. That first one shows up in verse 2 of 42, When shall I come and appear before God? The second one shows up in verse 3, Where is your God? Those are his opponents that are asking this question. The third and the fourth show up in verse 9 of chapter 42, God, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Those four questions, I think, give us an outline and an articulation of the hurt this psalmist is experiencing. When shall I come and appear before my God? I think the psalmist feels like his worship's dry. You might have had dry seasons before. I think there's a dryness expressed here. Where is your God? Psalmist was experiencing some opposition. The opposition was real. We don't know exactly who it is. We don't exactly know why and what the circumstances were. We have selected quotations of what they were saying, but there was opposition and it was real. God, why have you forgotten me? You ever felt like God's been distant? This psalmist does. Why do I go mourning? There's an internal conflict expressed in the psalmist's question there in verse 9. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? It's like the psalmist knows what is true, but it's not quite connecting with what he feels is true in the moment. And he's hurting. And there's hope in the midst of that. So go to verse 1, the weary cry of the hurting. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul for you. So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That word pants means long fors. It's to have a strong desire for. The psalmist feels worn out spiritually. Worship feels dry. There's nothing wrong with wanting to feel a vibrancy as we worship. Where we get ourselves into trouble if we is when we go searching for that feeling and it leads us away from truth. There we get into trouble. But there's nothing wrong with wanting to feel a vibrancy of worship. Here the psalmist feels dry. Worship feels dry. Panting expresses thirst. And I don't, I don't know about you and thinking through this verse. It's a, it's a well-known verse, quite honestly. And I've always just had this image of a serene creek and, and deer just very, very gently there on the bank licking or lapping up water, just getting a, a thirst or getting a drink. And as I dug a little further into this psalm, that, that's not really the image that the psalmist portrays. He doesn't portray himself at the stream. 
he portrays himself in the desert wanting nothing but a stream. And like the deer that pants for the flowing streams, that is, have, that has a thirst that can only be quenched by a source of running water, so pants my soul, O oh God, for you. When I was training for half marathon several years ago, um, there was a training run I did, and very quickly in, I, I knew I was in trouble. And it was going to be about a five or six mile run. And about two miles in, I, I turned onto a road that was going to wind my way back, kind of along the Maryland-Pennsylvania border, on the Pennsylvania side. And I, I knew I was in trouble as I hit the two-mile mark because I was thirsty. It was hot. It was in July. I hadn't hydrated very well that day. And, and I found wineberries growing wild on the side of the road. And that's what helps me remember that it was around that July 4th time. And those berries were, like, I, I stopped and I ate them because I needed something. But I was halfway into my run. And at that point, like, I, I couldn't make the call to carry because, like, the kids were so young. We couldn't leave them at home for, for that length of time. And, and so I just kept running. And I got back into town and I got by Memorial Park and I ran right to the drinking fountain and started drinking and I was trying to get my way back home and now I'm just about three blocks away from home trying to complete my run because I, you know, I got to get my miles in and I called Carrie when I was a block or two away from the house and I told her, I said, look, I need, I need, I need you to meet me on the porch with some Gatorade and a hoodie because about 15 minutes prior I had stopped sweating and at that point, I was, I was now cold and beginning to shiver. And so she did. And I spent the rest of that night trying to get my body temperature to re-regulate. There's a thirst that was apparent in that moment. I don't know if the psalmist was training for a half marathon or not, but he's thirsty. And worship feels dry. And there's opposition. He says and quotes the opposition. Where is your God? In verse 3 at the beginning, he says that my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? It's as if the only relief the psalmist or the writer's getting from the opponents is at night but it's a dark night of the soul. And those nights are spent in tears. These things I remember, he continues, as I pour out my soul, how I would go to the throng and, or with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. The, the, the sons of Korah, as descendants from the tribe of Levi would have had jobs in the tabernacle and the temple system. And what's more than likely the expression here is that he's, he's recounting when he would join and be a leader in the entire nation of Israel gathering together at the temple 
in the city of Jerusalem at one of the three feasts they would have traveled for. Those feasts were a big deal. When you think about the entire nation coming to Jerusalem, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, as might show up in our translations, these feasts were a big deal. The entire nation was there. And here the writer's got he's got he's got a front row seat. He's a singer. Maybe the song leader, we don't know. But he's thinking about when worship felt vibrant, and now it feels dry. And the opponents are real. James Montgomery Boyce said, The author's forced absence from Jerusalem was also an absence from his work, and therefore from his sense of being useful. Some of us can relate to that. Because We've been created to work, and right now in the midst of the pandemic, work's starting to open back up, but there are still some that aren't able to work. It's part of what we're being created for, and there's, there, there's, there's some drought and dryness because this writer's not able to do what he's been created to do and called to do. In verses 5 and 6, we see the first fight for truth the first chorus that he sings. And here again, I think there's another expression of the conflict between what he knows is true and what he feels. And you and I should read this both as an exhortation to follow, but also permission to feel. And he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise Him again my salvation, and my God. That word, those words, cast down, mean to sink down or melt away or create a depression in the ground, a divot, if you will. And that word depression takes on a different meaning because of how we use that word in our culture, in society. And that's probably a decent word for where the psalmist is at. Whether it's clinical or not, there would be no way to to, to ask him to prescribe that himself. But he acknowledges that his soul is cast down. You and I should feel permission to feel. We should feel and see in the scriptures that there's permission to feel the really bad things. There's permission to feel the really good things. Here the psalmist is feeling, but he's also feeling some conflict because what he knows to be true doesn't quite connect with what he feels to be true. The word hope is actually the verb of command. And this refrain, all three times, it's going to lay out the exact same way. Hope in God, he says. Wait with eager expectation, he says. This word hope is written in such a way that he's He's actively commanding himself to let God do God's thing. I don't know if you've ever been at that point where there's, there's not much else for you to do. There's not a task to be completed in the moment. And you're just waiting on God. It's what the psalmist is commanding himself to do 
wait with expectation for God to do only what God can do. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes about weakness in our time of need. He writes about a groaning that we feel in the midst of the brokenness that is inherent in the created order as we are awaiting the redemption of our bodies. And in verse 26 of Romans 8, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. These are the moments where we're not real sure what to say, what to pray, where or when the end will come. And Paul says in unpacking part of the role and work of the Holy Spirit is that those groanings are so precious to the Lord that He doesn't just hear them, the Spirit actually translates them. And there's permission for you and I to, to step into the anguish, to feel the hurt and the hard, because the comforter and the helper is there. In verses 24 and 25 of Romans 8, the two preceding, the one I just read, we have the word hope show up. For we hope for the redemption of our bodies, and in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Here Paul is saying, and not directly echoing the psalmist, but the ideas are very closely related. We wait with eager expectation for God to do only what God can do. And here the psalmist, I think, is giving us permission to feel the hard. But is also, by way of example, giving us an exhortation to follow in the midst of the hard. A song to sing, a chorus to echo, a refrain to return to. He continues in verse 6, My soul is cast down. There's that word, depression, melt. Dip. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you. A few weeks ago we talked about abounding in thanksgiving. I think that's in part this idea of remembrance. Remembered means to recall information with a focus on responding appropriately. It's reminding ourselves of what is true, of who God is, of what He's done and then waiting with eager expectation for what He's going to do. If you're in the land of the Jordan and of Hermon to Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. There's a couple different possibilities about what those verses are referencing. One idea is that it's where he's located. And if that's true, Jordan and Hermon and Mount Mizor, that refers to a mountain range north of the Sea of Galilee. It would have been a long ways away from Jerusalem. He's a long ways away from home. 
And if that's the case, it just expresses his geographic location and expresses the anguish of how far away he feels from home. Another idea is that this is a figure of speech that kind of draws a circle around the encompassing of the area. And the psalmist there is rather saying, look, I, I remember you wherever I am. We have an expression similar in our culture, from sea to shining sea. We know that to mean just from the West Coast to the East Coast. Regardless of where you put it, the psalmist is commanding himself to abound in thanksgiving and to remember. In verse 7, I think there's an expression of being overwhelmed and held. Deep calls to deep, at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The psalmist is expressing, again, how overwhelmed he feels, but also how he's held, because notice whose waterfalls they are. Notice whose breakers they are. Notice whose waves they are. They're the very gods who he's praying to. The very one who in verse 8 he will say and identify as Yahweh. And by day, Yahweh commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. And so while those opponents are saying to me all day long, where is your God? Yahweh is commanding his steadfast love while his tears have, are his food all day and night, Yahweh and his song is with him. A prayer of God to my life. I love what John Piper said in regards to this psalm and just the emotion expressed in it. Poetry and singing exist because God made emotions not just thoughts. Man, that's profound. We see that expressed by this writer as he's writing about the, the hurt and the opposition and the, the fight for truth and the remembrance of who God is in the midst of the hard. And there's been times in my life where like, I'll walk home from the church and I'll have a song in my earbuds just playing from my phone and, and, I, and I'll get home and, and I'll put it on the Bluetooth speaker, and, and that song is on repeat the whole night. And there's been a couple times where I, like, I've walked in and I've done that, and I remember one of them specifically where Carrie's like, we're going to listen to that song all night? You bet you we are. You bet we are. Because I needed the truth of that song. And I needed it on repeat. Because I needed the truth the scriptures that that song reminded me of. In verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Now again, there's conflict in the soul of this writer. He knows God hasn't forgotten him. By day, the Lord's commanding his steadfast love, and at night, the Lord's singing with him as he prays to the God of his life, he knows God has not forgotten him. But that's not what he feels. 
Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. I think here the psalmist is just saying, look, if I, if I know who God is, why do I feel this way? Man, there's some real honesty there. There's permission to be that honest there. We try to, at, at, our, at, at Grace, describe God's sovereignty in the midst of the hard as a weighted blanket, not abandoned. And, and the, the, the contrast between the two is, is right now, I've got, I've got two five-year-old boys. We're in the Band-Aid phase. It's summer. Bikes are being ridden. There is not a still bone or muscle in those bodies all day. There's a lot of bumps and bruises. There's a lot of scrapes. There's a lot of falls. We're in the Band-Aid phase. And those Band-Aids are amazing at how quickly they can take care of something. Sometimes well-meaning people, well-meaning godly believers can toss around, well, God's sovereign. He's in control. It's as if it's like this band-aid to slap on the knee that God scraped. The psalmist is expressing not a band-aid, but God's sovereignty as a weighted blanket. And he's honest enough to walk through the conflict that he feels in his soul about the truth he knows and the reality he feels. In verse 10, again, we have an expression of the opposition that he's facing. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. That word wound means the shattering of bones. It can even mean slaughtering in one particular reference as well. I mean, this is a pretty graphic word that he's using to reference the opposition that he's facing. While they say to me all day long, look, they've said it again a second time, where is your God? And what does the psalmist do? He goes right back to fighting for truth. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise Him again, my salvation and my God. Well, Psalm 43, verse 1, articulates the desperate plea of the hurting. And here he's praying that God would vindicate him, that, he would, that God would judge and God would govern and God would right the wrongs, that God would defend his cause, that God would strive on his behalf. He would defend him against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, he prays, deliver me. That idea of bring me into security. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Again, here's what he feels is true and what he knows is true. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy. These two questions get asked again as the psalmist is now 
transitioned from articulating the, the hurt he's feeling to now actively praying that God would remedy it, that God would remove it, that God would redeem the moment. And what we see in verses 3 and 4 in the redemption of the hurting is all four of those questions we looked at before being answered. Questions 2, 3, and 4 will get answered in verse 3. Question 4 will get answered in verse 1. Question 2, as we saw, asked two different times in Psalm 42, Where is your God? And here the psalmist writes and prays, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Where is your God? He's the one shining with light and truth. The third question we had looked at, why have you forgotten me? Which is echoed in Psalm 43. Why have you rejected me? Is answered in verse 3. God hasn't forgotten. God hasn't rejected. And the psalmist prays, send your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Let me, let me come home. God hasn't forgotten him. He just wants to come home. Psalm four, question four is reiterated. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Again, that one's asked two times as well. And the expression and answer in verse three is that there will one day be rejoicing because one day he'll return. And he's praying for that and he's asking God to deliver him and defend him and to judge and govern and make right the wrong. The first question we looked at at the beginning of Psalm 42 was when shall I come and appear before my God? For him, it was probably a physical thing. He was probably physically distant from Jerusalem. And so he's asking for God's light and truth to bring him back to God's holy hill, the Temple Mount, to where the dwelling place of God would be with man, where he had a job as a singer. When shall I come and appear before my God? In verse 4, we have the answer. When God's light and truth brings him back, then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with lyre, O God, my God. We thought through kind of the ways where if you're not a if you're not a temple singer, you're not a pastor, a full-time missionary, this psalm might speak and connect in your life. You might have moments where worship feels dry. Here in verse 4, the psalmist is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm praying and I'm, I'm looking for the moment where worship feels vibrant again. The opposition might be real. It might, be, it might be people. It could just be the effects of the fall. I don't want to over-spiritualize COVID-19, but 
You can make a case that there's some opposition there that has caused angst and hurt and hard. I don't think the virus is screaming out, where is your God? But perhaps some of those who have contracted it have been wondering aloud those things. And the psalmist says, let your light and truth abound. Why have you forgotten me? God might feel distant to you. God, why have you forgotten me? Where are you? There's some honesty here. You have permission to ask those questions. He's praying that God would one day return to him. There's an expression of this inner conflict that he knows and feels, I think he's frustrated by. That the truth he knows up here isn't what he feels in here. But look where the psalm and the writer ends. Why are you cast down, my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall praise him again, my salvation and my God. There's no immediate resolution in these two psalms to what the psalmist experienced. We're left with him praying that God would deliver him and defend him and vindicate him. We're, we're left with him praying that God's light and truth would go out and expose the darkness and allow him to return, but we're not given the end here. And that's perhaps kind of like some of what we'll experience in life. And there may not be a defined or even discernible end. But what we are given where he does end is with that same chorus to be sung. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil with me? He's fighting for truth. He's fighting to remind himself what is true. And here he preaches to himself. Hope in God. Wait with eager expectation for God to do only what God can do. And the culmination of that and the fulfillment of that promise that God has made, that He will do only what He can do, might not come this side of eternity. But it doesn't change how you and I approach the hard, the command to hope, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. I don't know where you find yourself. If the hard is right now, if the hard was, if the hard will be, there's honesty in the Psalms, in particular 42 and 43, there's honesty that gives us permission to feel and to wrestle and to, to pray, to ache, to hurt. But there's also an example to follow 
But in the midst of that, we fight for truth. We fight for hope. Let's pray. Oh God, we, we pray that you would help us to fight for truth. And God, I pray in particular for whomever may be watching this, at whatever point in time they may be watching this, that you would be gracious to them in a special way, that your light and your truth would abound in the exact way they need. God, would you do so? And while we wait, eager expectation. God, help us to do so, remembering who you are, remembering what it is that you have done, and remembering your promises to never leave us or forsake us and to complete the good work in us that you have begun. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.